If I put it on the other side. Hi, Stefan. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's time to listen because we're going to uh, have the... So... Oh, thank you, Brother White, for leading worship. Brother Mike's going to be out, and if you wouldn't mind leading the worship for the morning service, too, that would be wonderful. Um, before I open up the Word. So the, the, the conference was wonderful, and I want to thank you all for letting me go. Um, you know, and when Steve gets back, Steve is in... Um, Arizona. He's in Phoenix. He drove from the conference on uh, yesterday. As a, he dropped me off at the airport, and then he got ready, and he drove to Phoenix six and a half hours so that he could be with his newest granddaughter. And B flew out yesterday because it's spring break, I guess, at the at the charter school. Brother, is that right? So she went out so she could spend a week too. And hope and but Steve is on standby flight, so hopefully he'll be back next Sunday. But I'm going to give him a week to prepare. So on the, in the Sunday school, he'll give the full-blown description. He is now officially, or if, if I have any say about it, he's officially our Shepherds Conference representative. <laughs> and, uh, and we divided and conquered. They have these breakout sessions where you, uh, after, there's like four sessions of preaching each day. And uh, man, they they want you to be full gospel preachers there because they provide breakfast and lunch, and they got snacks from volunteers all over that campus, kettle corn and ice cream and saltwater taffy and a huge cart. It's I ate the blue ones too much, <laughs> and so they have all that, <coughs> and it was. Uh, it was incredible. When Steve last year, when he talked about you know going last year, and he said there were um, three thousand men in the auditorium, the the conference attendance this year was somewhere around forty five hundred. They had an overflow of fifteen hundred people in a tent watching it on the jumbotron for people that registered late and. I didn't feel like they were second-class citizens just because it said overflow on their thing. That way they can't come into the main worship center. But when Steve mentioned, he said that 3,000 pastors, you know, deacons and, and you know, just men of God who love Jesus and love his word are singing, it's indescribable. And he was accurate on that point because I can never convey to you uh, that even taking a picture of all these all these men singing, you know, uh, crown him with many crowns. I thought I know it, it may only be the minutest fraction of what it will be to worship Jesus. If you're thinking in that day when he returns, and you're thinking, uh, you're you're you're, I would be so far away from Jesus, but he's just also as close. And just the heavenly host, all these heads that you see, but the, our focus is on Christ. I felt that like that, you know, I felt like that many times, if I could use the word feeling, but it wasn't merely a feeling, it was just a sense of being in the presence of the Lord. So that was a, that was a really good thing. And then when... So Steve wasn't as interested in the breakout sessions, like we'd have two preaching sessions, a break in between, and then... Um, the uh, the 
breakout sessions were these different little things where they would have these, I guess, uh, either seminar or preaching or teaching. And so Steve wasn't interested in the ones I was interested in. I went into one that was called the uh, Pastoral Prayer, which was really good and uh, blessed me abundantly in areas where I'm lacking. And uh, then Pastoral Preaching, which was tremendously awesome. I mean, it's, uh, this is stuff that, it's not stuff like I didn't know. It, these are things that I did know, but they were presented in such a way that, uh, Lord willing, I can apply them uh, for your blessing and the Lord's glory. Or the Lord's glory and your blessing, really. And then um, the last one was on the underground church. I went to that thinking, uh, you know, they brought a perspective because of the whole COVID situation having to close down. And um, we, along with Grace Church and several others, on the second time that they want you to close, uh, I found out that there's a term that has come up since 2020 called quasi-underground. Underground church is that it's illegal for us to gather, which is so in many countries, and they still gather, though it's illegal, and if they find them, they'll be arrested. A quasi underground church would be like what we what happened with us when the government said you need to shut down again and we said no we're not going to that it was illegal for us to gather but we didn't close the doors and so that's a we were quasi underground which was weird because most of us caught covid <laughs> and then they said well, okay we can't make the churches shut down so we won't we'll lift that and plus our governor was wise enough to say well we're not going to do well you don't have you don't have to shut down we shut down anyway for what one or two weeks because everybody caught covid and around thanksgiving not not everyone but many people did i couldn't even attend the thanksgiving thing because i got sick and then lisa got sick or whichever way it was however so all of it was wonderful um and for me, it wasn't so wonderful at the very end. The very last preaching session, see, John MacArthur was, and, and Steve will tell you, he got sick on January 1st, like something with his heart, and so he hadn't been preaching at all. He's had pulpit supply and t- until the conference. He was going to get better until two days before the conference. He ended up having an accident, fractured his wrist. And so now he's on medication. They did a Q&A on, on day two. And uh, and uh, Steve and I are kind of old school. When we worship, we don't clap at the end as if we're applauding. I mean, I mean there's nothing wrong with that because we should be applauding Jesus. But uh, we, we're just standing there, and I don't applaud pastors. I don't want to. I don't want applause myself. The only one that should be applauded is Jesus. And John MacArthur's kind of a celebrity, so um, that. But that didn't still that didn't quench the spirit. But as I said, the pre- two preach two preaching sessions in the morning, two in the evening. You know, I got I got pretty filled with the uh, uh, blessings and looking at the word, and so that was good. But at the end, John MacArthur did he didn't preach, but he did talk about something. He just finished a four hundred page commentary on Zechariah, and. Um, in the church history lesson, you remember that when I was when we were in the postmodern period of uh, church history, towards the end, and I mentioned that there's four basic eschatological views. 
One of them is called pre, um, uh, one of them is called, uh, well, amillennial is uh, probably one of the oldest uh, where the rapture of the church and the second coming coincide and then it's just eternity. And many of the Puritans leaned on, on that one. And that one has the least problems, but it does have problems. It has difficulties that need to be answered, and there are scriptures that would seem to contradict a few of the things. That's the one with the least problems, because it says that it's al- uh, the, uh, it's, uh, the, the millennial kingdom of Christ is allegorical and metaphorical, and it's taking place now. And I have no argument with that. I believe that it is. Um, the next one is historical pre-mill, premillennial, it's, uh, or post-tribulational. That, that as the church goes through the tribulation, it's not as visibly seen. There's a revival with Israel, which may or may not be as visibly seen. But then there's the rapture of the believers and then and at the second coming. And then there is a, uh, a period of time, a, th- a thousand years. Uh, well, it says thousand and Revelation 20, but it doesn't say 1,000, so we don't know how long it is And uh, in Greek. But, the, but that's ancient too, and the people that believe that were called kiliasts from the Greek word kilia, which means, you know, thousand, where the, and the millennium comes from the Latin. So that's another view. It has its difficulties and, and that need to be ironed out. Hasn't happened yet, so we don't really know. Next one is postmillennialism, which is probably the most uh, uh, is is more recent. It, it really gained ground as we were covering it. Uh, uh, John Owen was a postmillennialist because there was great there was great revival during the days in the 1600s among the Puritans, 15 and 1600s among the English, Scottish, and Irish Puritans, <clears throat> and then they saw with this revival that certainly. With the lives that are being changed, it will bring in the, the millennial kingdom. And then Christ will return. And in fact, um, uh, that, that rapture is kind of, And they do believe in a rapture, uh, or a, a, a harpazo in Greek, a catching away. And that coincides with this second coming of Christ is almost kind of a figurehead. Because the, the believers are caught up with the Lord and then... He comes down and then judgment and eternity. It has its issues and problems, real issues and uh, uh, problems, as we see that it hasn't been getting better since those folks in the 1600s are thinking of the revival. It's gotten worse and worse and worse. And then the last one is dispensational premillennial um, with epics of time, with the seven-year period of tribulation, with the rapture of the church, then through this tribulation period, the revival in Israel, with two separate um, destinies for the church in Israel, then the second coming of Christ, and then a millennial kingdom. I mentioned that John MacArthur was a, uh, he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist. Well, he removed all doubt on when he spoke on the last evening, on Friday evening. He went to Zechariah, he went to a couple other places, 
And um, he's he's squarely in the dispensational camp. Halfway through, I was praying, Lord, if this is going to continue, he sounded like he was almost historical premillennial until um, he, until the end. I was asking, Lord, what's going on here? And he let John continue so that, I'm glad he did, because now I know that he's he's definitely, uh, he's not, yeah, he's not leaky, yeah, he's squeaky, and in fact, what he said is, is that this is the way that it is without a doubt, and the dispensational, and he could be right, that, uh, there's many friends of mine that are dispensational in their eschatology and the return of Christ, um, and uh, they may be right, but they're, the way that they get the, it's and it's the it's the view of the end times with the most problems. It's got the most difficulties, and some of their and the worst difficulties, in my opinion, is how they get there. And uh, that's what I was, uh, you know, I, I we had the handout with those questions, and we're going to actually go over them next week with the review. But I wanted to share share the, these little things with you, and. Um, and right up front, I'll tell you that I have my own particular leanings, but our statement of faith is such that since it's something that hasn't happened yet, you can be dispensationally, uh, uh, have a dispensational end times view. You can have all millennial. You could even be post-millennial or, and, or pre, a historical pre-millennial. And we should be able to fellowship and be united in the truth of the gospel of Christ so that Christ is exalted. Because it hasn't happened yet, and there are difficulties, and I believe the reason that there are difficulties in them is so that we can trust in Christ alone for today until that time comes. Because even in our daily needs, for temporal needs, Jesus says the heathen, the pagans, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, the pagans believe. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 6, if you would. He says, the pagans believe in those, uh, you know, want those things. You don't even need to ask, because seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and it'll be added unto you. I don't know if I should wear these glasses or not. I got large print. And the reading portion, which is why I need these things, don't even work. <laughs> wear them, I don't wear them. I need, I, I, my last eye appointment was like three or four years ago. The VA needs to, I need to see the VA so they can get me longer arms. Anyway, um, beginning in verse uh, 20, um, 28, he says, and why are you anxious about clothing? Verse 28, Matthew 6. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Verse 29, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 30. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all those things, all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You know, I, that verse right there, after the Lord saved me in 1985, you know, I'm in the military and as divers, we didn't wear dog tags um, too much. In fact, I didn't get them issued to me in boot camp. Everyone has them. So if you go to war, you should have them. But when we dive, you can't wear jewelry and, and that's something that can't break away easily. So we don't. We don't wear them. But after the Lord saved me, I found the place, this army surplus place, that, uh, or military surplus place that had, uh, had little the dog tags that we used, and they had them, and they could imprint them. Uh, it was right outside of an army base, and so they uh, um, had that there because the army lost their dog tags all the time. So <laughs> Matthew 6.33 is what I put on those dog tags when I was wearing them. And then when I was, uh, if I had to dive, I'd take them off, put them in my boot. But I had uh, dog tags, one of the dog tags. I can't remember what I put on the other. Oh, I I think it was Galatians uh, 2.20. You know, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. So the one is seek first the kingdom of, seek ye first, because I was using the King James Version back then. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then the other one, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And uh, so I had those two dog tags for a while. I'm not sure if I still have them. We've moved so much. Eh, Who knows? Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And yeah, you know, like I said, John MacArthur may be right, and so are all my maybe all my other dispensational friends. They may be right, and that's that's not a problem for me. Um what I do have difficulties with is being very dogmatic about it. And because and the reason why it's a difficulty for me because it almost starts causing and I've seen this by experience almost starts causing us to put our hope in what has not yet happened. What if and I asked this question among my dispensational friends? I said, "What if it doesn't happen that way?" Because even Jesus's first coming, it took everyone totally by surprise. The religious leaders rejected him. And even the disciples whom he chose didn't expect him to die. They were hidden away, locked up in the upper room. Uh, the only two witnesses were, as far as his disciples, smite, uh, you know, filling the scripture, even from Zechariah, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall scatter. And all of them scattered. And the only two that were really eyewitnesses to the crucifixion of Christ of them was John, who was up close with Mary and Mary and Mary and the other women that followed, and Peter at a distance. Those are the only two that were eyewitnesses actually to the crucifixion of Christ because everybody else scattered because they weren't expecting him. And Luke 24, (laughs) Clopas and the other disciple they were sad. Why are you sad? And Jesus asked them because he's risen from the dead. Are you a stranger? Are you a foreigner here? You don't know what's happened. Jesus is a mighty, uh, was a mighty prophet in word and deed. We expected him to be the hope of Israel. See, they didn't expect him to die. The women didn't expect him to, you know, they bought, they, they didn't have spices ready because, well, he's going to, you know, be crucified. So we better ha- be able to embalm him. 
crucified on Wednesday. They bought the spices on Friday because Thursday was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so there's no stores open uh, in anywhere in Israel, in Jerusalem in particular. So they buy the spices on Friday, uh, on Friday and Luke, uh, according to Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and in Luke it says that they had to prepare them because you can't just take, they didn't take powders, they boiled them up to make the paste in order to put them on the grave clothes. So they had, the only time that they could buy them was on Friday, then Saturday is the regular weekly Sabbath, and before it was daylight on the first day of the week, because they measure the day from evening to morning, as God presented in Genesis as far as what a day is made. And evening and morning is day one, evening and morning is the second day in Genesis 1. So uh, three days and three nights, make it up. You know, they weren't, they weren't expecting the Messiah to die. He came in a way that was, though they were in the Scriptures, they had to be revealed by the Holy Spirit to them through a crucified and resurrected Savior. And I believe the same thing for the end times. Um, if you turn a few pages away to the left, to, to Zechariah, through Malachi, and then land about Zechariah chapter oh, 14 first, and then we'll go backwards to chapter 12, and I'll show you something real interesting. And this is and I and I hope you take this in the spirit in which it's intended because I, John MacArthur uh, men like um uh men that I've uh, either met or known or have been blessed by over the years uh, of different ilks. Chuck Smith was a dispensationalist and I was a you know, I attended Calvary Chapels for many years. And um, though he, you know, he's uh, what they would, you might call a moderate charismatic, um, had some leanings because of his four square background, but he was a Bible teacher and he was dispensational. And I wouldn't cast the dispersion on him or John MacArthur at all. Um, and, uh, uh, and many of those fellows, there was another one in LA who was on the radio, uh, an excellent Bible teacher, uh, Lauren and I were talking about him, Dr. David Hawking who actually went to school, went to seminary with, uh, I think they both went to Talbot uh, Theological Seminary. But David Hawking was dispensational as well. uh, uh, J. Vernon McGee was dispensational. All these guys were dispensational. And so I have the greatest respect for all of them. And who am I? (laughs) John Cardwell to to, uh, cast dispersions upon these men. Uh, Or uh, I might have a disagreement, but maybe... I'm just not knowledgeable enough. They're very studied. Um, and, and, and because of their education and background and, uh, and their love for the Word and their love for the Lord, they're, uh, I would probably make the same presentation George Whitfield, not to compare myself with George Whitfield, but George Whitfield said of John Wesley, he said, uh, do you think Wesley will be in heaven? Because Whitfield was a Calvinist and, and Wesley was not. And he says... Uh, or no? Do you do you think that you'll do you think that you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And he says, Wesley, I'll see Wesley in heaven. He'll be so close to the throne of God, I won't even be able to see him. <laughs> that uh, that's his admiration for his friend John Wesley, and though they had a different doctrinal doctrinal views in uh, some things, but uh, it says. Um, 
in <clears throat> where are we in 14 <clears throat> yeah strike the shepherd is in 13 but um, um, I'm, there we go maybe I'll take this off it, it's the uh, it's the verse that says that um, all the armies, uh, all the nations, well, I know it's in 12. Uh, so maybe I'll have to just go back to chapter 12. Yes, yeah, what, what verse is that? 14.2. 14, two. There it is. I am going to definitely get the hold of the VA so I can get some better reading glasses here. Uh, yeah, ver- let's... Verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for, for the Lord. You know, we know the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and this one says a day for the Lord. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Verse 2, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped, Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. But And then verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights in the day of battle. And John MacArthur says when he read verse 2, Now, all the nations, how many does, <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, it means just what it says, all the nations. All the nations of the world? Well, and this is the, you know, he says, unless you, uh, the, the, somebody with an end times view, unless they mastered Zechariah, is what he said, shouldn't really say anything about the end times until they've mastered Zechariah. But this is often the dispensational ploy of literal interpretation. That's serious, that's literal, and, and so therefore we should take it at face value. What nations? All nations or every nation, however, whatever English translation. And in the Greek, it does say that. I mean, excuse me, in the Hebrew, it does say all. But really, what is it talking about? Keep your place there in Zechariah 14, because I, I want to show you some interpretive tools here. And Turn to the right to Acts chapter 2. I know it's a, I'm taking to you to a place that's not in the same book and even in the same language. But Acts 2, you know, through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, you know, I say that for the sake of those that aren't as familiar, you know, are newer to the layout of the Bible. Because we do have some sitting here today that... Acts chapter 2, and, and, and that came up during the conference too, that they were talking about the guys that were all locked up in the upper room with uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, oh, here's pages turning still. Are you there? All right, in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Well, they assumed that that was the, the upper room. Well, I, I suggest to you that it wasn't. It was in the temple. Because the upper room, um, by historical and archaeological estimates, that it was in the upper city and the upper room, and it may have been up to a quarter mile away. 
Um, now they were in the temple because it says here in verse 2, and suddenly there came uh, from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house. Well, see, it was a house. That's why they were in that room. No. The greatest, the, the most, uh, you've heard me say this time and again in the Old Testament, although sometimes the temple was called the temple more times than not, and even in the New Testament, in the whole of the Bible, the temple that stood before it was destroyed in 70 AD was called what? The house of the Lord, or God's house. It was, or the house. The house. David called it the house. That's what he was building. I'm going to build God a house. And so the most prevalent term that was used at the temple was the house. It would make sense. They would be there. If they were good Jews, which they were, and um, and I have evidence from Acts that Peter would have been there, and so would everybody else, because of what Peter said in Acts chapter 10. Um, what he said, and I, I won't have you turn there um, right now. But um, anyway, it sounded like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And verse 3, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. That's to the disciples. It didn't to Christ's disciples. It didn't necessarily appear to the other people that were there in the temple, um, other, uh, to the other Jews. And, and, it rested, and it rested on each of them. And verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together, or came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites from Elam? And residents from of Mesopotamia, you know Babylon and so forth, Cal, uh, the the land of the Chaldeans and so forth, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, going towards Asia Minor, and uh, including those areas of say Galatia and um, and then in Asia Minor with the cities there of thereof, uh, Ephesians, uh, per, uh, Ephesians, Smyrna, Pergamus, uh, Thyatira. Uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Um, I remember those in the circuit in which they're given in Revelation by ESP, you know, extrasensory perception, ESP, TSP. So I think of e- um, a brain, a teaspoon, and then Laodicea. ESP, TSP, L. That's how I can keep them straight of the the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But here they're named, oh, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They didn't mention the Cheyenne nation or the Lakotas in, in the Dakotas, which were Indian nations possibly even at that time, very primitive and so forth, or, or Filipinos. Filipinos weren't there, but they did exist in um, in the first century. Uh, Chinese were 
already, you know, historically Chinese were already moving back and forth from China to uh, the Philippines, uh, trading with the, with the natives 2,000 years ago. But they're not mentioned. But God said every nation under heaven was there. And I would assume that a lot of Asian, Jap- the Japanese were not, were not there. And the Chinese certainly had history that went back uh, beyond, you know, what we would, what the Jews call BCE, before the common era, but we call BCE, you know, before Christ. And, and so there, there were not any Chinese there. But the word of God says that. And so it, there's an automatic fulfillment. This is why we know that the second coming of Christ and even the catching away of, uh, that's in First Thessalonians, the catching away of the church prior to Christ's coming, is imminent. In other words, it can happen at any time because Jesus' commission that he says go and uh, make disciples of all nations has technically been fulfilled by the word of God. But we know that the that all the nations weren't there. Uh, there, there were all the nations that were kind of known in within the region there, and so by the word of God, it's fulfilled. It's kind of a legal loophole, if you will. Likewise, with Zechariah speaking of the armies that are going to come against Israel in that day, will the um, you know we got missionaries in Indonesia? Will Indonesia be one of those nations? They might be against them, but they might not be there at Jerusalem taking up arms to fight against the nation. And, and that's the interpretive view that I want you to see. Um, what that's called is, uh, do, you know what it, do you know what it's called? It starts with an M, a metaphor. It's a metaphorical term. I, I, it, it, it's, I use the word allegory quite a bit. It's an example. But the proper term for it is called a metaphor of all these armies. And the problem with our view of Scripture sometimes, because of the corruptions of flesh that still remain, um, we'll take something like this and we'll interpret it as if it's literal. And we'll say, well, that's a literal thing. Well, it hasn't happened yet, and it may be literal as far as if you say, this is the Word of God and God said it, I'll take that as literal. (laughs) And that's true. But typically when we talk of something that's being literal, it says, um, I, I pick up my phone. And as, as, as I pick up my phone, I actually picked up my phone, and I literally picked up my phone. Um, or I could say I pick out a phone. doesn't mean that I'm picking it up. It's, uh, I'm, I'm selecting a phone, but I haven't actually picked one. So I'm using that term uh, in a non-literal sense. And the way that, um, uh, one of the examples I want to bring to you is actually in Zechariah chapter 12. And he brought this up too, but... (laughs) And the message will be online. And he didn't call this one literal, but he's actually giving giving all of us that are sitting and listening the, the impression that it's literal. I should have remembered that because I think I wrote down verse chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 14, verse 2. Literal, literal. Um, in chapter 12, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2, verse 1 says, The oracle of the word, or the burden of the Lord, or of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. 
in other words, a prophecy is coming, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens. I'm sorry, I'll wait till you're there. uh, Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Verse 2. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Now the impression that's given is that that's literal. But it's not. That term right there is a metaphor. He says, because as he's going on, he mentions, well, see, now Jerusalem will be a cup of reeling in the new, uh, I think it's the New American Standard Bible, and also the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the translation that that Grace Community Church is using. Um, In the English Standard Version, it says a cup of staggering, that Jerusalem will be a cup of staggering, this cup, and it's God's judgment. And so this is a very literal thing. Well, he didn't say that. I'm, I'm impo- uh, implying that he's giving us the implication that this is literal. But it's not. That term is a metaphor. Unless you've studied other scriptures that use that term as far as a cup. You know, Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, if it be your will, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine. The cup is the cup of staggering. It's the cup of judgment because the cup of God's wrath is what that represents. It goes back to the New Old Testament imagery of uh, Psalm chapter 75 and verse 8, that in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and it is full of mixture. Uh, in other words, and it's speaking of his judgment that that's what Jesus drank down. So that when we drink of the cup, when he said to James and John, who wanted to sit at his right hand and his left, are you able to drink of the cup that I am able to drink? Yes, Lord, we, we, we are. He says, you will. Uh, otherwise, why is that the, in other words, there's, people have implied that they're going to suffer as Jesus suffered. They'll die. But more than that, they'll drink of the cup the communion cup as his true disciples because Jesus drank down from the cup because Psalm 75 verse 8 says that it's full of mixture and he will, it, it, they will drink it down to the dregs. Um, it's prophetic of Jesus. He drinks it down to the dregs. In other words, there's no, not one last drop left in what he drinks down so that the cup that we drink when we partake of communion has no wrath in it. The juice that we drink at the end of the month when we have our communion, it has no wrath in it because Jesus suffered to the uttermost in his drinking it down. So when we take partake of the juice that represents his blood, um, that we are commemorating that we have no wrath upon us, as Thessalonians tells us, that we're not appointed unto wrath but, upon, uh, but unto salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, the imagery also of the cup of, of that cup of judgment is in Revelation chapter 15. Um, it says it's without mixture. In other words, uh, the Greek rendering of it is the same as the Old Testament in Psalm 75 from the Hebrew, even though it's, in our English ears it says it's full of mixture. In other words, it's full strength full potency, and in Revelation 15 where it says it's without mixture, in other words, it's not diluted. 
That's where the what the Greek is. So it's basically from two different languages putting them together to understand the judgment of God. It's one, it's full potency and it's powerful. And then number two in Greek, it is not diluted. It's not watered down. It's without mixture within within that regard. And so we have this idea of this cup, but still it's a metaphor. Is there going to be literal judgment? Yes. And I think that's what they're saying but uh, that's what they're trying to get across to us. And since John MacArthur's preaching to a bunch of pastors that have studied this stuff, and many elders that are teachers of the Bible that uh, that are able to teach, and so they've studied it out, and there's a lot of this. There was a lot of 3,000 heads going like this. Less one would go on. Okay, because I'm not an educated guy. You've got to talk to me in plain language, John MacArthur. Again, not to cast dispersions on on Dr. MacArthur. It's just that in many dispensational circles, it started with Jay and Darby and C.I. Schofield, like perfected it. And they say, well, this is literal. But the, the, the implication and the imagery was literal and not the, not the verse. Um, and, and so I, I do believe that there will be a literal judgment because there are places in the scriptures where it does say it outright in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah that judgment will fall upon the wicked and so forth. And it's just, it's, and in the Psalms it says it quite clearly. But also what God uses is metaphors, illustrations, examples, uh, uh, typology in order to get across how serious those things are. And so I want you to look out for that so that when you're listening to a, to what, what makes it so much easier in these days, the way that it happens, is that we're riding along in our vehicles, in our cars, and, we're, and we want to be as godly as possible, as, as, as godly as a sinner saved by grace is able. So we're riding along in our vehicles and we're listening to them read the scriptures and then expounding upon the scriptures. We don't have the open Bible in front of us because... There are moose on our highways that are going to get creamed because I'm not keeping my eye on the road. But I'm listening as closely as I can, and and it sounds pretty good because you're following, you've read the word, you know that a cup of staggering, when you hear the word cup, it's speaking of judgment. But it's like we jump from the metaphor immediately to the to the application without understanding some of the nuances in between and and in doing so that could get us into into some trouble so i just want you to be aware of that sometimes i speak of that and this is one of the things that i really for the, even before going to this conference that i have really wanted to to apply my life to for your benefit is to not take for granted because we have a well-read Bible-believing church here who love Jesus Christ and you know the scriptures. You read the the Bible daily. But I want to make sure that I'm speaking as clearly and plainly as possible. And even if necessary, if it means that either the message has to go a little bit longer or even a little bit shorter because because some of those other things aren't as important, that I can be clear about 
what the verse says, what the passage says overall, so that I'm not presuming upon the Lord or upon you what the word is saying. So that it, and, but basically that's it. I want to get your, get your um, eyes upon Jesus daily. I want to get my eyes upon Jesus daily. I have ideas of how it might be, but I won't be upset if I'm completely and totally wrong. And the way that I've presented it time and time and time again concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus. If your eyes are on Jesus, you'll see him when he comes. You'll know. You won't be caught off guard because your eyes are on him. We try to, we, when we try to put our eyes upon those signs of those things of what it might be when he comes, we may be totally off base, but I do know one thing. If my eyes aren't on Christ and I'm looking at what will happen when he comes, I'm, I'm not going to be better for it. The only time that you and I are better, in fact, the only time that you and I are at our best is when we have our eyes on Christ. I didn't figure it's going to take this long. <laughs> I got one minute and 40 seconds to, uh, if that clock is correct, well, actually, yeah, if that clock, who, yeah, somebody, did you do that, Brother Galen? Brother Wyatt? Brother Wyatt did. I almost went to you first, brother. I was thinking, you know, because you're pretty tall. <laughs> uh, any questions or comments for the last uh, minute? Would you do it again? Would I do it again? Absolutely. And in fact, I would encourage um, Steve to, to, not just Steve, but I would encourage any of the men or all of the men to go next year. Uh, it, it is a it is an experience that that we don't get to see in Alaska too much. That many men is kind of it, it is kind of scary, <laughs> but that many men that love Jesus. In fact, you could see it even in their driving. Lisa and I, because we have our grandkids down there in California, hate going to California except that we love our grandchildren and our you know and our daughters. And the, road, the, the, the highways down there, they're packed. It's horrifying. We don't like it at all. The weather is terrible. <laughs> they would look at me and they go, hey, are you from Hawaii? No, I'm from Alaska. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Because <laughs> it was 51 degrees on Friday. It start, it's raining. I'm walking around in a Hawaiian shirt. And they go, are you, are you from Hawaii? No, I'm from Alaska. Oh, that's why. And it's 51 degrees. Everyone's bundled up. And I'm walking around in a Hawaiian shirt. Just, I, you know, I'm basically dressed like this. I'm nice slacks and, and, and everything. I didn't realize he could wear Levi's because uh, they're all dressed in Levi's. They're all dressed down and everything if they're not preaching. And, but they're all bundled up in them. Yeah. And, uh, but we're in the parking lot. Steve you know, rented a car in Arizona. He drove up uh, and, then, and then he drove back down. But we're in the parking lot. And we're waiting and waiting, and somebody stops. I mean, we're not waiting for very long. We pull, we wait our turn. We pull up, and here's the vehicle. And they don't just, they don't cut us off. They, they're waiting there. And then you can see somebody waving. Come on in, come on in. 
lines. There were 4,500 men there to get lunch, which is free. And they kept, like I said, they were feeding you ice cream, saltwater taffy, all this stuff. But we're waiting in line. They give us free books that we mailed up. And there was even a, a, you know, just all these things that are going on. So we're in line, and it's this line that's stretching out for for a hundred yards. And then it's just kind of moving along, but you talk to somebody back here, where are you from, and hear about their ministry, and next thing you know, oh, it's time to get food. You know, it's it, I mean, literally, it's like a hundred yards, and it's going around the around the building to this tent so that we could get food. Uh, you know, they provided breakfast and lunch for free. They want, I guess, they want us. Like I said, they want us to be full gospel preachers, and so we're going along and we're talking and we're having fellowship. Next thing we know, is, oh, it's time to get our food or time to pick up the box of. Of uh, books that they gave us a box of complimentary books, which we mailed up, and and then they gave you a, a, a forty twenty two twenty dollars certificates that you could spend either on the book tables or in the gift shop where they got the all the shepherds conference you know wear, and uh, and then all of a sudden on 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 the second day I'm thinking, oh you know we got some men that could. Uh, you know, men and women that could use some of these resources. So I went through and I'm buying some of these books that are even discounted because I need to give some of these books away, (laughs) Uh, take advantage of this. So even in that regard, you don't think that you feel like sometimes we feel like you know we're living in Anchor Point or we're living here in in Nanilchik or along the way. Are there any others out there? There is. There's a remnant all over the world, and they're out there. And when they converge and come together, it's amazing. They're out there. So let me close it in prayer. Heavenly Father, I've taken too much of their precious time, but. Uh, talking about these things, these nuances, we want to, we, Lord, we want to keep you in the forefront of your, of uh, our minds for your glorification, for Christ's exaltation, and for the Spirit's communion in our lives. We ask, Father, that you'll uh, minister to us this day, uh, minister to those that are out traveling, those that are out sick, and and. Uh, most especially as we worship you in every aspect of our service today. We thank you for the Sunday school uh, time that we've had together. And, and uh, we know that we will be blessed because we desire, because, um, not because we desire for you to be glorified, but in our, des- in our desire to seek for your glory. We ask, Father, that uh, in that, your word says that we'll be blessed and so be it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.